0: Welcome to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintzenmayer. For our big episode 10, I am pleased to bring you Nick Van Eede, singer-songwriter for Cutting Crew. This is actually the 30th anniversary of the release of his number one album, Broadcast, back in 1986. You're hearing, of course, right now the most famous song from that album, I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. Now, Cutting Crew at that point was primarily a partnership between Nick and guitarist Kevin McMichael. We're first going to be talking about Reach for the Sky from their 1989 sophomore album. And we're going to move to the present, where Nick's band is still called Cutting Crew, but it has none of the same people besides Nick, Kevin having passed away in the interim, and the other two guys having long since quit. But his new band is bigger and better than ever, and in 2015 released Adds to Favorites. So we're going to be talking about the song Berlin in Winter off of that. For the third song, we're going to dip back to 1992's Compass Mentis. a song called frigid as england which is actually written by a guy named jeff Lowe. finally we'll wrap up by listening to looking for a friend from the new album for more information about the band look at cuttingcrew.biz more information about this podcast and for links to some of the things that we talk about in the episode please go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com hello nick
1: good to speak to
0: you so when your first album came out i was 15 and I was into the heavily arranged 80s stuff. I really liked the Cars, Heartbeat City. I liked those early Chicago albums, those those early, early 80s. <laughs> yep. But was also getting into the kind of more adventurous stuff, getting into Pink Floyd, discovering, you know, it was a Genesis fan, was a and it hit the spot. It seemed like there were cool things in the arrangements, you know, besides just darn good songs. That's where I'm coming from with this, and uh, was happy to see a few years ago when I rediscovered that you still were putting out music.
1: Yeah, we still are. We're still standing. Um, You're spot on. I mean, you really did mention a couple of bands that were massive in my life, and that was Genesis and Pink Floyd. I never, ever set out to write a Genesis-type album or a Pink Floyd album, but of course, these things get infused in you, and especially Rick Wright's keyboard playing always those beautiful Hammond tones in the back of songs. Um, so there's a lot of organ on that first album. And also just trying to mix it up a bit, whereby it was a pop song with a few few little tricks here and there. And as I hope you I'm sure you notice that the album's got lots of little what we call ear candy, you know, little bits at the end of tracks on the fade and cross fades and all that stuff. It was giving a, a tip of the hat to the prog stars that I adored. But all the way, you know, writing what turned out to be some big old pop songs as well.
0: Okay, so that was not just a matter of the producer you were working with. That was stuff that was coming from you guys in terms of all the extra keyboard layering and.
1: Absolutely. Terry Brown is my best friend, and Terry Brown produced the album. What makes him a brilliant producer is he takes what is the essence of the band, he doesn't really muck around with the songs much, he'll make it sound incredible. He'll come in and say, you know, I think that section's going on a bit too long. Or he'll say, you know, this song's shit. It's not making the album. But what we did was Kevin and I having a lot of fun. And I I think that's a wonderful thing for young bands to remember is that in hindsight, the power of hindsight is wonderful. It sold three million albums, but, you know, also have fun. I didn't sit down and write Died in Your Arms to be a hit record. I didn't sit down to write The Broadcast to be the weird one at the end. It was just... 10, 11 songs that were ready and all seemed to sound like they could sit on an album together. So never try down and go, hmm, what is it radio's playing at the moment? Because if you do that, I think people like your good self and people like, the radio people will, will
0: see through it. Well, let's get to our first song. So this is the stage after that, the scattering, the less immediately popular album. I was surprised when I saw it. It seemed to have the same production team, all the same people on it, because it had quite a different sound to my ears when it came out. The song you picked actually is probably the least dated sounding one, one of the least dated sounding ones on the album. And I actually hear a lot in this Reach for the Sky that's similar to what you're trying to do now. So any sort of initial comments before we play the first song for them?
1: Well, if you're talking about Reach for the Sky, it's from the second album, as you say. The big change that happened on the second album was we'd had success and uh, therefore, you know, you have a bit more time, a bit more money to go into the studio. We did it all in a beautiful, you know, classic old English country studio where the band set up and played pretty much live, I'm not going to lie. You know, we fixed a few lead guitar solos and I did my vocals separately, obviously, but it was very much a band album. And Mm -hmm. what we achieved on that album was what we always did accidentally, and that was... My lyrics, um, rather obtuse lyrics that can kind of me- mean anything to anybody. Uh, reach for the sky, make it to heaven before your dreams go old. I think I know what he's singing about. I don't know what he's singing about. And who gives a shit? You know, it's um. there were those lyrics that just took you somewhere where you could paint your own picture. That would be number one. And secondly, I'd say it was the old Nick-Kevin combination of Kevin playing these, when you play it in a minute you'll hear it. I sing the melody and then Kevin comes in with these fantastic (laughs) guitar motifs that are almost like as big a hook as the melody. Yes, it's the swoon
0: swoon inducing part.
1: (laughs) It is, yes. The bit where the girl might get off on my vocal and then the guys can go and listen to that guitar (laughs) man. (laughs) Richful
2: for oh.
0: So uh, a pretty decked out arrangement on here. I guess, as you were saying, the difference between maybe between this and the first album is at least I hear more sequencing on the first album. Obviously, stuff like broadcast and the intro to Die in Your Arms and stuff that it's kind of a very distinctive. This keyboard was not played by a human being. This was a machine. At least that's the impression that I, I don't hear so much on this.
1: Yeah, it was much more organic. Uh, we had a wonderful keyboard player, arranger that joined the band just for this album, Peter John Vitesi, who has now gone on to make millions of pounds I'm working with Annie Lennox. You know, he produced and wrote songs for her and other acts that I can't remember at the moment. So we had a top, top-notch keyboard player come in, and when he played, you know, it made everything just beautiful. Yeah, and those were crazy days as well, Mark. I mean, you know, that American expression, you know, the, the second album, was called? The Sophomore album, is that what it's called? Yes. Where you have all your life to write your first album, and then you have six months... To write the second album, and we were Grammy nominated, my dad died, um, my girlfriend left me with my daughter I lost my voice because of all this for about two months so we had all the backtracks ready and I was coming in and singing and sounding like Jerry Lewis you know it was uh, <laughs> it was an interesting experience and then one day I found it it came back and from that moment on it, it's my favorite cutting crew album actually I think it's the one that has most of what we were about as a band. There's lots of textures in there. And sadly, you know, it didn't perform as well as the first album. But yeah, very, very, very proud of that album.
0: Lyrically, I mean, it sounds at first blush, this whole Reach for the Sky thing. It's a a motivational song. It's one of those, but there's some weird parts about it. Looking at it a little more closely, it's, yes, follow your dreams, make sure to take all your chances. Hey, and The reason that we didn't work out is because we didn't do that well. Like, Before I Go. So this sounds like sort of the nicest Dear Jane, Dear John sort of song. Is that what this is supposed to be?
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, That was underneath it all. Um, You know, the lyric can be taken purely inspirationally. And when you write records that sell all over the world and English isn't their first language, then you'll get people in Brazil or Japan hearing it differently from a guy from Wisconsin, and the song originally was about, you know, it's quite funny, actually, I had a girlfriend, and uh, she was just this beautiful girl who wanted to travel the world and do things, and she was cutting hair in a little tiny town in Sussex, where I live, and I said to her, you know, babe, you, you just get out there, just just go for it, you know, reach for the sky. So she left me. <laughs> so there you go, it is the Dear Jane, as well as something, hopefully, that. Well, I know that hundreds of people have have picked up on In fact, I'll tell you a lovely story about this song. Sure, Our roadie back then, John Gray, who then went on to, I think he's now tour manager for Steve Winwood and Dave Gilmore. His father christened my daughter. His father was a parson, as they call it, with the the paratroopers, the famous, you know, red-capped British paratroop regiment. And he died about a year ago. And John called me and said, would you like to sing at Percy's funeral? And I said, oh, my gosh, you know, at a funeral. Okay, I'll do it. And he said, but we want you to sing Reach for the Sky. And I've never, ever, ever sung that song live. It's a real bugger to sing. It's a hard song in a rock format. And I said, yeah, well, where is it? Where's the church? And he said, the chapel in the Tower of London, which was where Percy, that was his area where he was the priest. So I sang it a cappella for the first half, and then with a little bit of acoustic guitar for the end, in front of all of these uh, luminaries and old paratroopers in the Tower of London.
0: And how did that work out to you? Did they say, why are you singing a breakup song at a funeral?
1: (laughs) No, they wanted it to be the... the, (laughs) Well said, yeah. No, they heard it as the inspirational song. It it was very moving, uh, especially when you have a beef eater. You're not allowed to walk towards the altar without being accompanied by one of those famous beef eaters. And there was this great... Scottish lady who came towards me as it was a, and now Nick Ead will sing Reach for the Sky. And then she came and stood by me and with her staff, and she had to escort me to the altar to sing it. So it was real uh, British heritage stuff.
0: (laughs) It's Reach for the Sky, babe. Well, that sounds like the uh, Eye of the Tiger sort of motivation, but make it to heaven. Well, if you make it to heaven, then you're dead. Or when you actually achieve your dreams, it'll be like heaven. What?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: It's either a throwaway line or it's slightly sinister. <laughs> no?
1: No, absolutely not. Okay. No, no it's, not, it's not about death at all. It's make it to heaven, you know, to find your heaven, find find happiness. Find, your dawn's and, own light. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I don't know, I, I just, just one of those songs that when it starts, you get that lovely old sort of 1970s prophet keyboard and then I start bellowing over top of it it's it's got the tingle factor and that's what we all no sorry we never ever ever tried to get the tingle factor but when you get those big melodies that I hope you agree with and and Kevin doing his stuff and the boys just waiting in the background it works and thank you for saying earlier that it sounds you know less dated than some of the other stuff
0: sort of the most musically interesting part of it to me is halfway into the middle of the verse when it's been just floating around A and D, and then it it's a B flat to C, so it just sort of jumps to the key of F just to kind of throw you off, and then I, I think because it nicely resolves back to the D when you get out of that, and just the, every time you do the bum 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 like as the transition, you know, has a nice extra dramatic flair.
1: Yeah, it's good. I was writing then on the keyboards, so I'm sure if you have interviewed many songwriters whose principal guitar whose principal instrument is the is something else when you go on to the other instrument you know keyboard players who write on guitar or guitarists who write on keys or bagpipe players who write on you know the piccolo you make these wonderful uninformed happy accidents and uh by no means at all is it a very special, complicated keyboard part, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing, you know, and, and there's some just some great changes. And as I say, I keep saying, poor Kev, you know, as as you know, listeners that Kevin died uh, 11 years ago now of lung cancer, and he would always just sit there quietly, rather sinisterly in the backgrounds, Canadian guy with his cigarettes and his stubble and his... Um, Fender Strat and he'd just say okay yeah okay I see where you're coming from okay why don't we just try this and he'd just turn it around a bit he probably I can't remember but he probably ripped into my lyrics like he always did and would turn them all upside down now if I I, I'm going to make this up but I'm trying to give you desperately an example and that is if I wrote something like reach for the sky uh, make it to heaven before your dreams grow old. I might have written originally before your dreams become wonderful or something. You know, he would always just darken it up a bit. He always had this, the dark against my lightness. And I don't mean that in any pompous way, but that's how he worked. He would get the pen out and I'd go, oh, shit, here we go. And we'd go up the pub and he'd draw big lines through the the kind of the gooey lines and make them just a little darker.
0: So was that the source of, or was it just a matter of uh, retaining your dignity in terms of the, so I really hope you make a girl before I go, in other words, turning it into a you leaving the girl song instead of the other way around?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he would. And when I spoke at Kevin's funeral, I took a cheap shot and made a joke, which, thank God, went down really well. And I I said that if Kevin had had his way with my lyrics, it would have been, um, I just lived in your arms tonight. (laughs) He always would have turned things on their head.
0: You know, one of the songs that we're covering here had had the original rhythm section. The Colin Farley fretless bass sound only is audible in a few tunes that you know on the the two albums that he's on. But it's special to me when it comes out. I don't know. I'm a a bass player natively, so ah,
1: right there you go. Bass players love and Singer. Yeah, he's a wonderful player. He was the guy that was very much overlooked in it all, and I, I, I've given him credit many times, but it never really seems to get through. But I've praised Kevin and Frosty the drummer was just a remarkable young drummer who had never been in a rock band before. He'd been playing on the QE2 with the big band orchestra when we hired him and and had never played rock before but he had all those fantastic chops. But Colin was the guy that had been gigging for years in the area, had the PA, (laughs) had the van, had the recording gear and he was the guy that basically you know allowed cutting crew to make its demos to get the deal and every bass part he played i've always said this and i hope you understand this when i say it mark and i've said it to every bass player i've ever worked with i, I just say play whatever you want and if i notice you it's wrong. (laughs) If I don't (laughs) notice you, it's just beautifully just humming along in the background there. Take those big moments where you play a big line or some pushes, but I don't want to know that you're playing on this track. And I I really don't mean that one bit rudely at all. And Colin would always just slot in there and uh, yeah, he played beautifully.
0: Well, I guess to take that forward as a way of introducing the second song, I mean, I noticed your new lineup that you've got Martin Barker from uh, Shriekback as your drummer who is one of my favorite drummers and I don't know if it's a compliment or not to so say I could barely tell on here that, that you've pounded your rhythm section again into being super tasteful to the point that you don't really notice other than that they're providing a really great feel.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well and also he wouldn't he was very insistent on not playing too much special, you know, fills or or whatever. He just laid down the groove. We're talking about the new album now as sure, favorites. Sure. Yeah. It was the most brave live recording I've ever done. And it's really easy for me now to lie to you and tell you, you know, how we did it. But this isn't a lie. Um, and that is we set the gear up in an old studio, in the middle of the countryside again, and had a great engineer. We never moved the gear once. I locked it out for two weeks and the drums were at one end and the Hammond organ was in a like a T-junction over to the left of me, and I stood in the middle of that T. We never put headphones on, apart from Martin getting the tempo, and then we would start and I never demoed the songs. I'd just play them on acoustic guitar and I gave the band absolutely free reign. And Martin would just set down that groove. He'd sometimes completely and utterly change the groove always to the better. A wonderful man. I was out with him the other night watching his two-piece band, Him and a Girl Singer, where he's playing guitar, he's playing... um zither he's playing keyboards he's singing with her and he's got about 800 pedals on the stage so i'll give him your best he's a wonderful wonderful man
0: okay so this is for the whole album you saying you didn't move the gear this is not just this song this was again as with scattering a largely live affair well i noticed even though the main instruments on reach for the sky you were saying were recorded live the arrangement is pretty damn elaborate in that somewhere in it what a big layer of bongos and shaker and little triangle part like comes in. So that was all just stuff that was added after the fact to just thicken it up and make more division between the sections and
1: the... Yeah, that was much more produced. The Scattering was recorded live, if you like, you know, the basic beds, and then we had fun like we did in the 80s, and we had money in the bank. So we brought in, you know, percussion players to make it sexy. This album, the the new album was done where everybody, there were seven of us standing in a room all at once, not the girls. And me singing a guide vocal, but everything was recorded absolutely live. And what we did was I never even told them how to end it. I would say if it was um, like uh, Berlin and Winter, which is in my F sharp, uh, I would say at the end sometime, can it just kind of... I don't know, end up with the girls just singing one big long line. And we had John Halliwell from Supertramp playing saxophone that day. So it was, you know, people would pop in. And so even the endings of every song were this song, a frisson, if that's a word, this kind of electricity of, how are we going to end it? how are we going? And Martin would always take control and nod and do a fill, and it might end up on a chord that, that nobody really expected. Look, I'm not trying to make this out to be some incredibly... A new way of recording but I'm very proud again of it that it was warts and all and that's why it's got that kind of uh it's almost like a 70s sound to it
0: well especially with a live performance the end matters so it always kind of amazes me you know I, I like the idea in theory of doing a fade out and on songs like reach for the sky and many other things from that era you hear that on every song but when I'm doing stuff with my own band and I'm, I'm thinking about how we're going to finish the recording, I don't think ever once have I done a full fade out. Maybe it gets quiet, but I still like, no, I liked what we played at the end. What <laughs> I, I don't want to just lose that. Was that a struggle with the more produced stuff?
1: Yeah. Back in the day in the 80s, it was a different era. You know, God, I listened to the reverbs that we used back then mm-hmm. and I cringe, you know. Um, I can tell you how Terry Brown would spend a day getting a snare sound to make it sound beautiful. And then when we mixed some of the tracks, he wasn't involved in it. And some young hip mixer guy from those days would mix it. And he'd put a, fucking you know sample snare behind it so the snare that terry who'd produced six seven eight rush albums you know Ah. uh, and was an impeccable sound was suddenly now going instead of going you know as it would as it would have sounded it's now going (laughs) and it it was heartbreaking and he really was very angry about that but by that time you know we were up and flying so even he had no say whereas this album was all close mic'd Uh, Thank you. I I haven't done an interview for a long time with so much detailed questioning on on the recording, but it really was that thing where you have... Now, you're in a band, so you know this, where you've got seven people looking at each other, all egging each other on to get to the end of, of five minutes of playing where you don't screw up because if the bass player does play a bad note, they weren't that far from the other mic, so you'd have to do it again. So after two takes... Roundabout take three, four and five, on every song we did, we nailed it. And that feeling of boys playing and going, yeah, we did it. You know, we got to the end and <laughs> it was different every time. It was exciting. Sometimes, you know, the drums would do a fill and the, it's not quite what we thought. Uh, that was a very, very special, you know, as I said, almost 70s star recording.
0: All right. Well, we better play the second song for them and then we'll talk more.
2: seems funny, but it's not that tall And I can't see the eyes of the enemy The silence was screaming My world had started shivering They said it was the coldest night in years the
0: So this seems atypical for the new album, that you were describing the new album and some other thing that I was reading as sort of Van Morrison-esque, which I definitely hear. It's it's almost an Americana album. I mean, you've got a spot-on country song, and it starts off with something that could be from the Bob Dylan catalog, and this one seems a little more, maybe it's just the minor keyness of it, a little more in keeping with your past work.
1: Yeah, I think it harks back to those days. Americana, we, we've had... Um, I'm very lucky to say that You know, I've done... Quite a lot of these interviews and most of the USA interviews have have picked up on that. And what I tried to do with this album was, um, well, here we go. (laughs) Berlin in Winter, which you just played, is there's a million stories about that. And I'll come back to those in a minute. But it may be the oddball on the album because it's much more straight ahead rock with my lyrics that I hope, you know, pull people in. But just to finish your question, the Americana thing has always fascinated me because I'm not very well studied in American music, but, you know, I love Little Feet. I love the old West Coast bands, you know, the Moby Grapes and all that. And maybe they hung around inside me. You mentioned a song, uh, Already Gone, which is almost it's like Roy Orbison or something. So this album is all about, that's why it's called Add to Favorites. It was, for the first time ever, I could make an album where I just thought, well, why do I have to write an album where every song is in the vein? I'm singing it. I wrote it. So, you know, that that's one continuity to start with. It's the same band playing it in the same room with the same guitars and drum kits. So that's another continuity. But I want to be able to show... Uh, and share with people what I thought were the best 10 songs that I'd written at that point in my life.
0: Which was, what, 10 years since the previous album, or around? So. Yeah, it was,
1: it was 10 years, yeah, <laughs> amazingly. And so that's what we did, and, that, and unashamedly that's what we did. And so it's called Add to Favorites. It was going to be called Another Million of Titles, and in the end I thought, no. It's called Add to Favorites because you take a pick and I have very dear friends who say your album is the best album you've ever recorded after track three or your album is the best album you've ever recorded up to track seven. Or I hate track four, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I'm absolutely comfortable with that because I know they're not actually talking about uh, they're, they're talking about specifics and, and that's pretty cool.
0: I'll confess that my favorite is the previous album, the first three tracks of that. <laughs> but I like this one too. <laughs>
1: there you go. See what grinning souls are you talking about?
0: Yes, yes, wow. yeah. We should let's let's return to that after we finish with the current album a little more. So I was trying to figure out what the mood of this song is. It's kind of brooding, but it's regal. It's a rock song, obviously. Good backbeat with oohs, so it's, you know, it's music, it's singable in that sense, but even when you get to, uh, you know, this is starting, is talking about the Berlin Wall being put up, so it's wintry, both lyrically and in tone, but by the end, it's supposed to be jubilant, and you actually have a little bit of, what, laughing, talking voices in German at the very end, but it doesn't actually get jubilant in terms of the way you're singing it it's still this character that was around for the putting up of the wall and then is there for it's coming down it's as if the past the winter the winter of berlin that lasts so many years while this wall was up is still weighing on the character here
1: that's pretty good yeah i think you're right <laughs> well first of all let's say i was in cutting crew when we had a top 10 record in in england in 1986 before it broke in america We're on tour in Scotland, in Aberdeen, and I'm sitting in a hotel room at the end of the gig. I turn the television on and the wall has been smashed to pieces. It's that day falling. We were in Berlin five days later. Unbelievably, can you imagine that, you know, in a busy band schedule, We're in the city in the whole of the universe that is going through the most epic changes. And we were playing that. Now, we were a big Germany after the States is our biggest market. So we were big pop stars there. And we had sold out our gig. I was in Berlin, obviously. And uh, I've told this story on stage to German fans and they back it up. There were about 30 people in the gig and there should have been 500 Nobody was going to gigs. This was the least important thing on the mind of Berliners to come to a cutting crew show. So we played six songs. We invited the audience up on stage at one point and filmed it where we all, everybody hugged each other and we sang along to whatever died in your arms. And then we all went down to the wall and uh, just joined in this never-ending set of celebrations. So that resonates in me till the day I will die because this is a major statement in history for Europe anyway. Now, two years ago, on the celebrations of the 25th anniversary of the fall of the wall, I was invited to go out and sing at a gala there. And there was, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Gorbachev and all that. And I sang this song and uh, they had it on screens with um, Hungarian and German translation. And that was very, very remarkable thing to do you know it's very special for me so this song is very very special to me and recording it was just I don't know just trying to be in touch with what I've always tried to do and again I don't mean this in any hokey way but just be honest and I wanted to tell the story about I made up this story about the guy who was forced to build the wall watch the atrocities and then watched it fall and Unfortunately, you know, I'm a European and I see that even though all that happened Germany's a wonderful, wonderful new country now with great people and they're very, very, very beautifully sorted on their past. You know, there's no hiding of anything that they got up to in the past. So they're a great country. But we have Putin and his uh, boys in Ukraine. We have Putin bombing the wrong people in Syria. So You know, the the communist thing is still there. And this ain't any really big political thing. It's much more of a humanist thing that even though walls fall and cities live, you know, you don't change this stupid, bloody world we live in.
0: When you get into the political and some of your other songs, it does seem to be it's from that perspective. It's if it's about a war, it's about the effect of war on individuals. It's not about here, listen to my song and this will change the world or something. It's a human picture.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I'm not I'm not Bruce and I'm not, um, you know, many of the other bands. They do it beautifully and brilliantly. In fact, I'm 57 now and my politics are getting actually sharpened up for the first time in my life. I don't know, maybe just riding that rock and roll horse has made me kind of just, you know, go to so many countries and, and see what they're up to. But now as an older guy, I tend to becoming much, much more of a socialist in my older days. Maybe it's got something to do with my daughter, who is a full-on hippie. You know, she always says to her dad, when I complain about my shoes that don't fit, You know, she'll say, uh, first world problem, dad, first world problem.
0: <laughs> so you say that really cool alto sax intro. That's alto, right, not soprano? Alto, yeah. Yes. So that's the guy from Supertramp?
1: Yeah. He's um Supertramp. If you put my top three, it'd be Genesis, Pink Floyd and Supertramp, early Supertramp, the greatest bands ever. And I have a charmed life. I sing in a band called Soulmates, who are a German super band who, um, well, you know, it's it's almost you couldn't make it up for a guy like me. I, I did a gig in Budapest last year and I was singing. With, I don't mean on the bill, but with, you know, doing like the other line and then they sing and holding their hands with Greg Lake, Chaka Khan, Jack Bruce, bless him, John from Supertramp, Al Demiola. Just bizarre uh, to, to be standing along these people who are, you know, a little older than me. So these are people that I bought their albums. So Johnny Heliwell and I became really good friends. And I said, look, I'm making a record. And he went, I'll be there. I'll be there. <laughs> and he was there.
0: Well, I couldn't help but notice on your Wikipedia page, one of the things picked out is that you were sort of second in line for the Phil Collins replacement in Genesis. And I don't know whether to just imagine how cool that would have been to have you on that Calling All Stations album or whether you dodged a bullet because that was an experiment that at least marketing-wise was doomed to fail. And so it's uh, I guess that was around the time you were reviving your own project that was called Grinning Souls at the time, correct?
1: That's absolutely right. I definitely dodged a bullet. And I don't mean that, you know, we both don't mean that in any kind of nasty way. No,
0: no, no. I actually like that album quite a bit. And uh, I would love to talk to Mike Rutherford. I'm a fan. Or Tony. But I was thinking, Mike, because, well, hey, if you didn't get into that, how come he didn't invite you to the next Mechanics? He keeps switching those every, you know, Paul Young died at some point. Well, you have. I don't know. But this is, this is all just fan goofiness.
1: <laughs> no, it's great. And it was one of the, one of the most memorable days in my life was going to that, that uh, audition because they said, you know, we're going to send you back in those days cassettes. They sent me 10 cassettes of the songs and they were the backtracks and they were the lyrics and everything. And they said,
0: oh, so the whole, whole new album was pretty much done.
1: Uh, no, 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 no. Sorry. No, this is way oh, before oh, calling okay. stations. This is when they're in that gap of about two years, you know, trying to find somebody. And I went down to their Uber studios in the countryside again with this gang of, uh, there was this amazing array of black cars, vans and trucks all with consecutive number plates outside the front. And I went, <clears throat> okay, this is big time. And I turned up and I learned my songs and they said, right. Okay. So go through to the studio and good luck. And I said, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really ready for this. And, uh, I noticed there was no band there. And they'd said to me, if any of the keys were a bit tricky, don't worry. We'll just drop it down a bit. So I went, ah, okay. So I sang, um, I don't know, Mama, did it great. I sang uh, No Son of Mine, it was great. I could see them, you know, going, yeah, he's pretty cool. And then the next one was Tonight, Tonight, Tonight. And I remember saying to them, I can't sing it in this key. So what are we going to do about this? And the engineer put the tool back on and he said, I could put my finger on the reel to reel if you like, (laughs) and I said, "Okay." So I sang it, and again, I was Jerry Lewis. It was like, "It was just horrible." That had nothing to do with me not getting the gig, but um, it was uh, great. So here's the punchline to the story: I've never ever told this story on air. You're getting exclusives, Mark. Ah. I sat for about two months waiting for a reply from Mike, and Mike Rutherford was my connection. And he won't mind me telling this story because it, it, it's, it's really funny. And, you know, it wasn't the, the be-all and end-all of my life. I, you know, it was something I did and just thought, well, if I get it, I get it. He phoned me up on a Saturday morning at about 11 o'clock. Phone rang. Uh, hello. I said, hi. He said, hi, Mike Rutherford here. I went, oh, hello, Mike. He said, Um just wanted to let you know that we've... Um, We've had a chat, and we've, we've been thinking hard and long about it. And you were actually the loveliest chap, and we thought maybe you would probably be most best to join the band. But you just didn't seem to have enough high-end crack in your voice. And so <laughs> I tried not to laugh, you know, so I went off phone laughing, and I went, okay, um, so I didn't get the gig. He said, no, you didn't, but, um, you know, I hope I haven't spoilt your day. Here's the punchline. I said, no, you haven't, Mike. In four hours, I'm getting married. <laughs> so I rewrote my wedding speech to uh, I- incorporate something about Phil Collins sending a fake telegram saying, I hope you feel it coming in the air tonight.
0: <laughs> ah, The third song we're going to do is Frigid as England, which is from this Compass Mentis album, which I guess you actually did release at the time in nineteen. 19- 92, right?
1: We released it, but it was one of those dead releases. If you want me to tell you about that so we can talk about it on.
0: I guess just as a way of kind of getting at the years between The Scattering, this very highly produced album, which I'll tell you, I did buy out of a cutout bin. So I know that it didn't sell as well as it was supposed to at the time, but still, (laughs) you know, perfectly respectable, well, well well-reviewed album. I know also it's just grunge was coming on by 1991, something that was even more synthy. I mean, I guess you'd lost your rhythm section by this album as your Wikipedia page says they were not replaced. So we're hearing more. Well, folks can hear the beginning of this song that, I mean, it is more layered synths, more overtly dated seemingly. So I could see why this, this uh, album, you know, even though this is a great song might not have taken off, talk about this. And then we can talk about what happened after that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I chose this song from your brief about oddball songs And so let's just get two sentences on the Compass Mentis album. The broadcast album was a Nick album. The Scattering album was a band album. Compass mentus album was Kevin. By this stage, I'd had so little faith in the music business. I thought we were going to get all this uh, power because we'd sold a few albums or just enough power to direct our career. And so I just said to Kevin, hey, take charge here. And I don't mean that in any sense of entitlement. I mean, I'm an old geezer now, I, and back then I was an old geezer. Nobody's entitled to any kind of continued success. So I get that. I do get that. So Kevin took charge, and uh, a lot of the arrangement, he played bass and guitar on this. I played keyboards, and we had some drummer come in. And uh, But Frigid is England, the reason I've chosen it is... That It's the only song Cutting Crew ever recorded that was written by somebody else. A guy called Jeff Lowe had sent a cassette, there you go, a lovely old word, to our producer Chris Neal of this wacky song called Frigid as England. It had like 8,000 tracks on it, uh, you know, tracks on one song. It was full of stuff, but, but then occasionally it would emerge and this great chorus would go, As wrong as the map that led us to this... As blind as the bat that watched our first kiss. And so I said to Kevin, well, look, what do you want to do? I don't know what to do with this, you know. And he said, leave it to me. He arranged every single note on that. He played just about everything on it. And the crucial bit of pertinent to your question is that I... I've never, ever sung a song before that I purposely chose not to hear until I walked into the studio. Ah. So, so was, I'm in my own band. It's my band. And Kevin's going, here you go, buddy. And they played it. And it was like, wow. You know, And you're, you'll hear in a minute, folks. It's a big old production. And I had the lyrics. And it was like, "Woo!" It was scary. Chris Neal, who introduced us to the song, so loved the song, and he was beside me all the time. He was going, come on, Nick, you can do this. And I think it's it's one of my best ever vocal performances because I had no time to go back and scratch my belly and go, hmm, maybe I could change that line a little bit. Um, I didn't even know what the fucking words were about. You know? <laughs> Some really weird stuff. Uh, plasticine and weirder words. So yeah, here you go, folks. This is the only time Cutting Crew ever recorded a beautiful, beautiful song by Jeff Lowe called Frigid as England.
0: So the big keyboard thing at the beginning that has three different tones weaved into it. So you're saying Kevin was responsible for
1: that? Yeah, absolutely. He was a very consummate musician and he had all kinds of sequences and gear and everything. And so he programmed all that stuff up every single note. Yeah. All that stuff, uh, all the sounds. And to be fair, we had a keyboard player who came in and gave us million dollar equipment but mostly he sat at the back, helping Kevin uh, realize what he had. There's one bit in the middle where I get my own back, and that is in the big guitar solo, um, which I'm going to sing for you now, ba ba. And that is the melody of Jerusalem, which yes. is a big, the big English hymn now. They're actually thinking of replacing God Save the Queen with Jerusalem. So it was a little nod to Frigid as England.
0: All right. Well, then I won't feel the need to ask you about the lyrics since they're not your lyrics. And I did not have liner notes for this. So this is all news to me. But definitely an interesting song. Again, I feel like apart from the intro sequencing, this is one of the less dated songs on this album, which... Uh, maybe should be a little scary to people, given how big 80s it kind of sounds in terms of the level of the snare drum and things like that. But uh, you've got the background vocals that seem like the kind of approach that you're trying to do now with your current band.
1: Yeah, you keep talking about the less dated, and and I'm quite comfortable with that. You know, I don't wince when you say dated. One of the things that I'm absolutely confident about saying is that the reason that Cutting Crew... Still, you know, we play. We're very lucky. We play all over the world still, and um, we just headlined in Mexico at Christmas, which was an experience in many ways. And you know, and we're going to Chile and Peru and all that. So we're still doing it. I f- know that there are another thousand other bands that can test what I'm about to say, but I think on the radio, the reason why radio still plays us a lot, and not just you know the big two, is that. In the early days, it was a Canadian boy and an English boy, and we got together, and Kevin was a guitarist, and Kevin was a very highly intelligent man, and I was this you know, bright little fluffy thing with lots of great tunes, and he...
0: I, I was just listening to your early 80s stuff this morning. I'd never heard that stuff before. What was the name of the band?
1: The Drivers. The Drivers,
0: yes. It's Woo! on YouTube. Your whole album is up there, so...
1: That was almost New Wave, sort of crazy skinny boys, you know, banging it out. I think that the reason that we survive on the radio, uh, not just the big song, is that it's a guitar band. And therefore, that recurrent phrase that you've said is about being dated, is that I think a lot of the synth bands, especially from Europe, get played a lot. And bless them. uh, But we have this organically, you know, made sound with a guitarist at the fore. And so I think that it just doesn't sound as 80s. It is from the 80s totally, but it's not as 80s as others. So that's not that's not a huge statement, but I'm absolutely convinced that's why it gets played in Norway and it gets played in Rwanda and it gets played in New Zealand. And maybe a tiny weeny bit more than... Of course, not more than Human League, and of course, not more than the fantastic Tears for Fears, but we have this thing that just sounds like, ai won't say timeless, but um, you can't quite put where it is.
0: In terms of what happened between, was it the finding Gareth, a guitarist that could match, I don't know if he matches Kevin's style, but you definitely can hear stylistic similarities. The role that he's playing in the arrangements is certainly similar. I know, though, that you it wasn't that you were just looking for someone to redo Cutting Crew, that it wasn't even called Cutting Crew, that you recorded the whole album intending to it to be a different band and just ended up renaming it Cutting Crew after the album was released, I guess, just to increase sales, right? Because <laughs> people would actually remember who that was.
1: Well, no, absolutely no? not. Your story is right, but no, what happened was Kevin died, and I went up and I, I lived with him in... Nova Scotia for six months and held his hand. And it was a beautiful, beautiful period watching uh, my best friend and and my kind of like father figure, because my dad died, you know, about the same time as I met him. And so he was extremely special for me. And to watch him fade away and die was extremely sad. But in those Last month, you know, I tried to get him to record something. He was the last thing on his mind. He wanted to tidy up his life and, you know, go and sit on the beach and all that sort of stuff. So, no, it was totally about the fact that when I moved to Nova Scotia to record the Grinning Souls album, this was me. I met a lot of people in Nova Scotia that I loved. I'd found a young band called Mia, who you should look them up. My God, the best band that never happened. And they became my backing band.
0: And Mia, M-I-A or M I R M I R M I R. Okay.
1: yeah. Young, spunky Canadian boys. And old Nick stood in the middle again, in the middle of the room. And so that album's really scruffy, really angry, really... Uh, I remember the engineer saying, do you want it to sound like Coldplay or, um, I don't know, Iggy Pop or something? And I went, well, not Coldplay, please. I love Coldplay, but I didn't want it to sound like that. So it's a very raw album. So we we recorded it. And this is then I went home to England. I buried my friend. And I thought, well, okay, this is called Capture. And it's by my new name just for this album called Grinning Souls. And then Kevin's daughter, Cadence, who I'd been with every day during the whole recording, got in touch and said, why have you called it Grinning Souls? And I said, well, you know kev's not in it uh, it's you know it's, it's a homage to your city and that and she said fuck off <laughs> you call it cutting crew and so at that point we stopped process and so there's some very rare cds out there in the old green uh, label that i think there was only about a thousand made and then it got relaunched as what was it called it was called grinning souls by cutting yes. crew so yeah so no no marketing involved.
0: Okay, that's nice to hear. So what then was the delay? Was it just because you lost your record label after the 92 album? I heard a demo on YouTube from 1994 from you, but the, you know there's a big gap between there and 2005. What were you up to musically during those
1: years? Well, I had the beautiful privilege of moving to live in the Caribbean for four years. I started writing for my publisher, Sony. I wrote with uh, Steve from Marillion. I did the thing for Cher. I I started, I looked after Mia as a manager for a while. I just had, you know, i have been doing it since I was 17 years old and I was probably, what, 47 then, 45, and I just wanted to not record music for a while. And of course, I'm living in Barbados, so I'm having a really, really nice time as well. So no excuses, folks. You know, I was a very lucky man and they were beautiful times. And also my my daughter, you know, she was a teenager then. I wanted to spend some time with her, proper time with her. And I know that's so easy to make fun of, you know, hey, I need to be with my family. But I had been doing it.
0: (laughs) Well, as opposed to touring constantly, that no, that entirely makes sense.
1: Thank you. In that time, you know, we we tried to do other things. We just, you just know, can't keep doing it. I was playing in a band and I wrote with Cher and, and uh, I was trying to think that the, maybe there was something else that was out there for me. But you know, I got the phone call that Kevin is dying of cancer and suddenly I wrote this song called Hard On You. I remember going up into my studio in Barbados and sitting down and thinking, what would Kevin do? What would Kevin do? And that big arpeggio intro of it is uh, totally... I just tried to guess what my mate would do, and he was uh, unable to do it for me.
0: Well, are you sure that for the final song that we leave folks with, that you don't want to use that song since you've just given an awesome intro to it? Or do you (laughs) want to for sure do Waiting for a Friend? Because that's the new album, and it's got all the horns on it, and it's got the whole
1: lineup. Well, look, Mark, you know, you and I are talking, and it's been an absolute pleasure. You're very, I won't condescend to you and say researched, but you're into it. You know, you love all this, and we're one of many bands you'll review, but we're an oddball band, Cutting Crew. We're one of these bands that's made a lot of money, spent a lot of money, hung around for years, and I'm still out there doing it, and I'm still proud of what I do. I still sing. I sing better now than I've ever done. I'm absolutely sure of that. And When we recorded Add to Favorites, I could do anything I want, wanted to, and I'd lost my brother. He dropped down dead um, at fifty-one years old, and I'd just moved into this uh, new house that I'd bought because it was going to be the time that I became an old guy with my brother. He was like one of these hunter, shooter, fisher types, and I would, you know, write my songs and I'd go fishing with him and all that. And he died. He had the audacity to die, bless him. And I never ever set out to write anything about him because he was one of those guys. You know, he would have told me to just fuck off, you know, don't write me a song. So about a year after that, these songs just kept coming through. And Looking for a Friend is, there we go. We've got Little Feet. We've got a little bit of Van Morrison. We've got a little bit of Prince in the middle. Some review said, it's just me taking risks, I suppose, because I can now. And it's a song about walking through heaven and checking out your old mates and the second verse goes so i've been looking for a guitar player i guess he's got a beer in his hand it came here about 10 years ago and then i talk about my brother uh what is it so i'm still looking for my brother i guess i find him out in the fields like two names carved in a tree in the wood in the forest of love some things never fade away and so it's the lyric is pretty down, and we did it to the little feet meets prince. So,
0: well, yeah, you sound like you're having just so much fun doing this song that I watched a live performance, and uh, yeah, this is a feel good one,
1: yeah, it is. And I would never ever write a dirge, I can write dirges with my eyes closed about nothing if I'm gonna write about Kevin and Gary, my brother, and other people I've lost, then it's got to be up, you know. And I, and I love this track a lot. These boys that played horns on it, the Blackjack Horns. One last story for you. There are 22, 23, 24, three of them. And I went and met them over in the studio of Gary Barnacle, who is one of the most famous uh, tenor sax players in pop music in right. Britain. Um, so Gary was their kind of uncle figure. They, they could have done it just fine without him. There was already a sax player but they wanted him involved because, you know, he gives it the cachet, but also he could just keep on their case. And he invited me over to his studio and I have never, ever seen, I've been in recording studios that have less gold records on the walls. (laughs) (laughs) He's very unashamed about his, uh, his past successes and he's a beautiful guy. So I sat with them and they said, so what do you want to do? I said, well, I've got these songs and I want horns. The cutting crew have never had horns ever, ever before. And they said, Okay. They, I remember him putting a you know little digital recorder on, an audio recorder. He said, What do you want? I said, Well, so there's this song called Looking for a Friend, and you know, maybe every night and okay. And then every going to the first chorus, maybe ba 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 i am I'm I'm just giving ideas. As we're recording it, Jack is actually putting this down into staves. He's writing it as music. And I went, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, finish the the interview. So we did the interview. And then they stood in the the corner and just went in three parts. All the parts were done in 20 (laughs) minutes. It was astonishing. You know, I'm an old boy and I've never seen anything like that before. So when they turned up in the studio, they had all the parts written. We had to shift a few things here and there. And as brass players will always tell you, they always play too much. So we cut out a lot of their stuff. But it was an astonishing performance by these boys. They were one-take wonders. Gary Barnacle's in there playing with them. And um, it's a new sound for us. And that's why Add to Favorites, for me... Well, it's selling good at the moment. Once we started releasing in the States, it's now selling really well. I stand by it, and I want to always for people to think that the ad's Favorites album was the one where we threw caution to the wind, and you like it or you hate it.
0: I was trying to remember, I've obviously seen Gary's name in a lot of credits of things, but I'm looking that he's credited as the sax player on your first album, that he was the guy.
1: That's right. Where back then, he'll hate. You no, know, he won't hate me for saying to this. He was a pop star. He was a bigger pop star. We'd had no hit, so he, you know, he was a pop star. He was playing with Tina Turner and uh, whoever, Paul McCartney, and and we were these bunch of oiks that just got a record deal. So he had quite a, a gravitas when he came to the studio and gave me all kinds of shit about what I wanted him to play, and he was beautiful. So. And I'd never spoke to him since 1986. And then suddenly he's become one of my best, bestest friends. He, he's one of these guys that, you know, you just get over that hump. He's a very wealthy man. He's still playing everywhere he wants to. But he sees it so clearly now. He just sees that it's about the music and it's about playing well, playing the right notes. And so when he turned up that day, Oh, ah, we've got it all on film for some, you know, some movie one day. It was a really good moment where two old boys from the 80s got back together and went, well, we're still standing, we've still got money in the bank, and we've made some mistakes, we've lost lovers, we've lost friends, but hey, play the fucking song.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Mark. And one day we'll be in Wisconsin.
2: Rock and roll I'm still looking for my brother They say I find him out in the fields I Like two names carved in the bark in a tree And the woods in the forest of love
0: that was another really enjoyable one for me to do. Nick is a super nice guy and really a consummate professional. Part of your job doing all these press things is to be really personable, is to get people in the press on your side, helping you to promote what you're doing, and the way he met some of my obnoxious questions like, didn't you just call that album Cutting Crew instead of Grinning Souls to sell more records, or isn't putting Make It to Heaven after Reach for the Sky either a throwaway line or something sinister? He really dealt with those with with grace. As I said, this is one of the bands from my childhood, but I think a lot of people of my generation might think, oh, that was just a, a one-hit wonder band, or it was just a lot of studio synth nonsense. But they actually were and are a really musically accomplished live band adept to their influences. I really do want to encourage folks to go out and find that song, Hard On You, that Grinning Souls album. In fact, since I had some extra footage from this conversation after the formal end... I have, once again, created a bonus file that has that song, the rest of the conversation, a little more music that is only available behind our paywall. You sign up for the recurring $5 donation. You can cancel it right away. You could only just give the one $5. That's fine. But that allows you access to the whole Nakedly Examined Music slash PartiallyExaminedLife.com citizen site where you can hear this bonus audio and much more. So I want to thank Billy James at Glass Onion PR. That's O-N-Y-O-N for setting up this interview for me. He also set up the one with Kevin Godley. And it's interesting, working through a PR person, because unlike many of the episodes, I didn't get to have a lot of email back and forth with Nick before we did this. So he did get my request, you know, pick three songs that show different aspects of your writing, different eras. By this point, I was describing the third one not as a failure song, but just as a as an oddball in your catalog. What I did not convey was that this was about songwriting, and then we're going to be talking about songwriting techniques. And so he did pick that one, Frigid as England, which was actually written by Jeff Lowe, as he said. An interesting songwriter in his own right, I have looked him up. So that wasn't quite on point for our purposes, but, you know, it's fine. Even though Nick was pleasantly surprised that I was asking so many questions about the songs, when that's really the whole point of the podcast, of course. He did a great job. He had the lyrics just ready to hand. Remembered a lot about the arrangements. Anyway, this is the kind of interview, it sort of restores my faith in this project. I like that he was so pleased with it. I feel as a podcaster, always in a kind of weird position. I don't have actual press credentials. But hopefully that's a refreshing change for somebody like Nick, who is used to doing a million of these interviews, often with people who maybe really don't care much about this music or are a little too concerned with, you know, the one thing or two songs he was famous for. I think these things work best. If I can get the interviewee to take me not as a faceless arm of some press organization, but as another musician, an enthusiast, which is why I feel the need at the end of every episode to, again, pump my own material so you all know where I'm coming from. If you want to go to marklint.com, there are many, many, many songs there, all for free, just for you. Or if you want to use iTunes or Spotify, just look me up under Mark Lint or my band for much of the last decade, New People. Now, if you want to keep hearing interesting interviews with interesting musical minds, and I could really use your help promoting this podcast, getting it out there. So please send the link to a friend or five Post it to your social media, whatever. And I'd very much appreciate if you could go in the iTunes store and leave a nice five-star rating or a review. And as always, I welcome your suggestions on guests. You could offer yourself as a guest. Or if you have personal contacts with a musician that you'd like to hear me talk to, please reach out to me. I provided links to some things that we talked about on the blog post corresponding to this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. You can make comments on that blog post to tell me how you like the show. And I also very much welcome any thoughts you may have sent to me at mark at nakedly dot com. Thanks as always. Enjoy your musical day. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off.